Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. So before we get too far into this, we need to understand when we say redemption, what do we mean? Redemption means rescue. It means restitution. It means repair to fix what's become broken. It means to restore what's been taken or lost. And it also means debts cancelled. The past few weeks, Dr Corbett has been exploring the idea of redemption. We've learned that to redeem is to rescue, restore and repair. Have you considered the opposite of redemption? It's contempt. To hold someone in contempt is to consider them unworthy and beyond redemption. Tonight is the third in a four-part series on redemption and we'll be meeting some people who by all accounts were beyond redemption and deserving of contempt. Let's join Dr. Corbett now. Today, uh, this is our third instalment and, and so by the time we're done, I want to achieve three things, three really big things. Number one, I want you to see, for those of you who have said yes to Jesus, you've said yes to his offer of forgiveness, yes to his offer of adoption, Yes, which means that he becomes your father, the kind of father that maybe you've never known, the kind of father that maybe you have a distorted picture of a father because your father's been a mongrel. Not this God. This God is, is the ideal father. He's the perfect father. And you've said yes to his offer of adoption of you. So he'll care for you and watch out for you and treat you like one of his own. And in this instance, I want you to see that that doesn't end just when you say yes okay that's done it's not that it's every time you get yourself into a pickle and there are some of you here because I know I'm a pastor I'm in the pickling business I'm in the business of helping people out of pickles a lot and some of you get into a lot of pickles and you know who you are and the great news is our God is the redeemer who gets us out of pickles and it's oftentimes those uh, self-inflicted pickles that kind of mess us all up so there's one person I want I really want to talk to today so that you get this so that you see that Jesus isn't just about Sunday Jesus is about Monday the second person I want to talk to is for those you don't necessarily get yourself into a pickle but you have a heart for people who do you have a concern that goes way beyond your world and it gives you a concern for things maybe even on an international scale, maybe a local scale. Now, particularly for the local scale, we have some problems, some growing problems in our state. We have a growing drug problem. We have a growing homelessness problem. We have a growing domestic violence problem. We have a growing problem of sexual abuse, relationship breakdown. We have some problems. And those problems often translate into unemployment and crime, which is a spiral. And, it, and you're the one who, and you think about this, and you, you go, someone's got to do something about this. And today, I've got some great news for you. You might be the someone. And I want to give you some inspiration when you understand this word, this beautiful word that runs right through the Bible, that you'll get that maybe this is how God could use you for greater good beyond your own world. Then there's a, a third person I want to talk to. And it's, it's the person who thinks that God is irrelevant, church is irrelevant, don't even know why I'm here. 
Christianity is ancient, it's outmoded, it's no longer relevant as we heard in our upper house last Thursday. And today I want to convince you and help you to see that's not true. It's just not true. So because of this, this message is based on something out of Isaiah but I'm swapping a word around and it's this, how beautiful are the streets of those who bring good news. Now for those who know their Bibles and you know Isaiah 51 I think it is where it says how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is not a typo, this is not a spelling mistake, this is not anything like that. This is very intentional and you'll see why in a moment. When we talk about this word redemption, it's a beautiful word and really the thing that makes the Bible completely different to the Quran is that it is a coherent story from beginning right through to the end. It has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has a conclusion. It has an end. And it's the story of redemption. It's God's unfolding story of redemption, his plan of redemption for mankind. So before we get too far into this, we need to understand when we say redemption, what do we mean? Well, what we mean, I'm going to give you some words, and it's a rich, rich word. Redemption means rescue. It means restitution. It means repair, to fix what's become broken. It means to restore what's been taken or lost. And it also means debts cancelled. Redemption. So it's a beautifully rich word, and as I mentioned that it, it was actually a commercial word used in the, the Roman times, in the time of the New Testament, Jesus and the disciples. It was a word used when transacting slaves. To buy a slave, the Greek word, is the word that we translate into English, redeem. And so to be redeemed is a slave market word. And when we are redeemed by Christ, we, the early Christians thought of it as becoming Christ's slave we were owned by the devil but Christ has redeemed us we now belong to him if I was to ask you what's the opposite of redeem what does it what's the opposite word of redemption or to be redeemed what's the opposite word here's the opposite word and and to cut to the chase this is it it's the word contempt contempt is the opposite of redeemed contempt means this to consider something to be worthless utterly unworthy worthless and beyond redemption that's the word contempt now we use the word contempt I think we use it to mean uh, offended or insulted and you can see why that might be how it's become used but it actually means cannot be redeemed beyond redemption so this is what I hope we get That when we're talking about God redeeming what we consider to be the unredeemable, that you'll begin to see how he does it, why he does it, and what happens when he does it. So back to this definition of redemption, now that we know the opposite, contempt or contemptuous. And it's this, God's ability to take the contemptuous, that which no one thinks is worth anything, and to make it new, beautiful, And incredibly, what's that word? Valuable. So this is what happens with God's redemption. So I want to tell you three stories this morning. 
The first story is the story of Jebus. Jebus. Now, if you are a, someone who's an aficionado of your Old Testament, you'll know Jebus was a town of the Canaanites. The Canaanites were a really nasty group. These were people that practiced child sacrifice. They would take newborn babies and they would offer them up to gods of Moloch and Ashtate and these kinds of things. Can you imagine that? Killing newborn babies? What a sick society that would be, eh? Absolutely sick. But this is what the Jebusites were doing in this town, this town of Jebus is an amazing story of redemption. I want to use this as an illustration of what redemption looks like because this theme of redemption runs right through the Bible, right through. And it it often occurs in things that I guess we're unsuspecting. We're not even looking for it, and there it is again, and here it is, and Jebus is one of them. So I'm jumping in at what I consider to be the saddest chapter in the Bible. When I read my Bible through, uh, just plod through the Bible, scriptures every time without exception every time I come to this chapter I get angry I get sad I get upset I yell at it I just get frustrated and it sickens me what happens in this chapter it's Judges chapter 19 when they were near Jebus the day was nearly over this is verse 11 of Judges 19 and the servant said to his master come now let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites, that's the city of, or the town of Jebus, and spend the night in it. Now, this character says, as we'll see, there's no way we're going to spend the night in that place. No way. Those people are famously wicked. Their evil knows no bounds. Their evil is so degraded, there is just no way I would ever, ever go into a town like that. So he puts it this way. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. Now, my point isn't that particular story because I will get angry and upset even if I begin to describe it because it's horrible what happened. My point here is, here's a mention of the town of the city of Jebus and they consider it so evil, so wicked, so horrible, they won't go there. So now I want to bring in another mention of this place, of the Jebusites, and it's when David took on Goliath. We find the account in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and that's a great way to remember basically how old David was when he killed Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, he was about 17 years of age. And here we have David taking on this giant that no one would take on. And you know the story, five smooth stones, sling, bang, right, knocks him down, goes over to him while he's knocked and takes Goliath's sword. It's a pretty horrific story takes Goliath's sword and chops his head off. And then David does something really, really interesting. He takes that head and he leaves the camp and he goes outside the walls of Jebus and 
He holds up the head of Goliath and he does this. And then goes back, back to the camp where, where it all sort of happened. Now, if we were there in a time machine, we were watching this, we'd think, well, that's not what I would do. That's a rather odd response from this young 17-year-old kid. I don't necessarily know what was behind this. But we read in 1 Samuel 17, verse 54, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to, and I've put the word Jebus in those funny brackets because that's what it was. But the writer of 1 Samuel identifies this place by the name it will become. But put his armour in his tent, so he went back to his tent. So he holds up this head and does this. It's pretty gruesome picture happening here and David does this it's actually an interesting insight into something David had in his heart I can only speculate that one day David saw the rampant wickedness of this city and as a young boy we know from Psalm 8 as a 12 year old when David was sent out to look after his father's sheep and he began writing some of the Psalms that we now read in the book of Psalms. And Psalm 8, I can imagine the young 12-year-old David at night lying back on the grass while his flock of sheep were there and he looks up at the stars and he says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. When I consider the heavens, the stars, the work of your fingers... Who am I? What is man that you are mindful of us? Or the son of man that you give us a thought? For we were created just a little lower than the angels. And he's, he's a very, very switched on godly young guy. And one day he may have been going past the city of Jebus and, and saw what they were doing. How they were raping and killing and hurting people and... And he, he just said, that's not right. That's not right. One day someone's got to do something about this town. Someone's got to do something about this city. And I think maybe on the day he killed Goliath, he took that head and he said, if I can kill a giant, I can conquer you. I'm coming for you. What you're doing and what you're doing to the vulnerable, the hurting, the weak of our society, not on, just not on. So we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 4, it says this, And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. The inhabitants of Jebus said to David, You will not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. That city became known as the city of David. He renamed it from the city of turmoil and bloodshed to Jerusalem. And if you know anything about Salam, Shalom, the city of peace, Jerusalem. And this place of rampant wickedness and evil became a place where God exhibited his peace. It goes on, it says, And Gad came that day to David and said, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor 
of Arorna, the Jebusites. So some of these Jebusites weren't that crazy about what their own people were doing because here they are agreeing with David and they are living in this city by the time David is king and we have David who has done something horrible and a price is being paid and he goes to this place and he buys this land and this land becomes the site for the future temple. And Jerusalem became known as the beautiful city, the great city, the city of our God. It says in Psalm 50 verse 1, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. So Jerusalem is on a hill. It's a strange place. There's no natural water flow up there. You don't normally put cities there. Beautiful in elevation, verse 2, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, which means Jerusalem. In the far north, the city of the great king. So we see Jeremiah talking about God's destiny for this city that was once a place of rampant wickedness and evil. And Jeremiah says it like this in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 19. I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all the nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn away from, fo- or not turn from following me. So here Jeremiah is reminding them, this place, this place was created, taken by God and, and made a beautiful place. Remember what it was? It was this wicked place. Now it's become beautiful. And yet you're following the ways of the people who made it a horrible place. This was Jeremiah's message. All that to say that this is an example of how God takes something horrible that people thought was no, there's no hope for it, beyond redemption, and he takes it and makes it something beautiful. And that's a key word. And ultimately, this redemption of this town of Jebus became a prototype pointing ultimately to the true Jerusalem, which is a heavenly Jerusalem, as it says in Hebrews. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and into innumerable angels in festal gathering. In other words, it became a picture of something God already had in heaven, which is kind of reminiscent of something Jesus taught us to pray, isn't it? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here's the thing. What would that look like if that, if that happened, not only in people's lives, but in the towns and cities we lived? What would it look like? That's my first story. Here's my second story. William Carey, born 1761 in England, died 1834. And he became known as the father of modern missions. He went to India as a Baptist missionary and his wife wasn't very keen about that. She ended up uh, dying after they buried their two children and, and it was a miserable time for him. But William Carey was trying to tell people about the one God who loves people, who's paid the price for their guilt and shame and he offers to forgive them and adopt them as his children. And he met with nothing but resentment and opposition and all kinds of obstacles put in his way from the British. Not the Indians, the British. And so 
for those duchies here today, you, you might go, yeah, we told you so. In order to get around this, he became Dutch. And he was protected by Dutch law and was able to continue to evangelise because Britain had passed a law forbidding him from preaching to Indians. Which, by the way, toward the end of William Wilberforce's political career, he changed that law to allow him to preach. Anyway, William Carey lived at a time where the practice of sati was done. That's not something you have on spicy food. It's when a husband dies, and in Indian culture, they don't bury them, they cremate them on what's called a pyre, which is an open fire. And sati is the practice that in the next life, he will need his wife. So they would take his widow alive and throw her onto the fire. And this was unquestioned in Indian culture as the practice known as sati. William Carey said, this is not right. And he argued for years that this is not right. And eventually, the Indian government made it illegal. You might think, well, what's a preacher got to do with this? He should be out there preaching the gospel. He should be out there planting churches. And this is the point of my second story. When you get who God is, your care isn't just for those who are redeemed. Your care is for all people, no matter where they might be found. And William Carey translated the Bible into Hindi and then Sanskrit and then all, and the other languages of the Indian people. And one by one, his translator came to Christ, who was a Hindu. He came to Christ as a result of working with him in the translation. Then other people came to Christ. Then other people came to Christ. And then they realized, you know, we've been translating this. It took him seven years to translate it. We've been translating this, but Indian people can't read. So we need to teach Indian people how to read so they can read God's word in their own language. And so they read God's word in their own language and William Carey set up schools to teach Indians how to read. Then they said, but we need teachers who can teach in the schools. So he set up a university to teach the liberal arts in India. And that university still functions today, I believe. As a result of him showing his care for Indian people, It's attributed that today, 350 million Indians can trace their Christianity back to this man and his care for them in that day. See, if you ask me what's my vision, don't ask me for a five-year plan. Ask me and then expect an answer that says, you know... I'm hoping two or three hundred years after I'm dead, seed has been sown into this ground here of this community that will cause there to be a church so unimaginably, unimaginably good that people will write about these days as when it all began. That's my second story of redemption. Now, in a moment, we're going to dim the lights and I want to to share a story with you 
about a little town called Opelika. Anyone heard of Opelika? The people of Opelika haven't even heard of Opelika, it's so small. Let me tell you where it is. This is a, a map of, of uh, what, what Americans call the Sayoff. The Sayoff. So over here we have the panhandle of Florida and there's Florida sort of is a strip along there. And then you go over the border of Florida into Alabama, Mobile, Alabama. And then where that thing there is, right in the middle of nowhere, is Opelika. And I need to tell you a little bit about a couple in this town of Opelika. That's the, ta- that's the map of the town. I zoomed right in and it's still small. It once was an industrial heartland of middle America. There was industry there, there was a, text- a vibrant textile industry and then over the years it, it just all fell apart. And in this town, this once thriving town, Shops became vacant, houses became derelict, people left by the droves. And there was a a young man there by the name of John. And John, he ran a a car stereo business. And he uh, one day had a a young girl, 17-year-old girl, come into his car stereo business and said, could you help me? My speakers aren't working. I can't get any sound out of my speakers in my car. And he said, sure, I'd be glad to help. He was more interested in the girl than her car. And uh, she later became his wife, but I'm jumping ahead in the story. He looked in her car and he said, the reason your speakers aren't working is because there aren't any. <laughs> so that's a, that's a whole other issue about women and technology. That's, that's not, in, not in going there, not in going there. Yeah, just... Just come on, back into the room. Now, she got to know him and fell in love very quickly, swept off her feet. They got married. She got pregnant very quickly, had a child by the name of Nelson. And it was after they married and had a child, they're not Christians, they were not Christians, that she discovered that John was a drug addict and that to fund his drug habit, he had gone into massive debt. In fact... He was $1 million in debt with, I think, a seventy dollars or $90,000 overdraft as well. He will tell his own story from here. Within just a year or two after having our son, Nelson, um, Ash and I were three days from divorce, going through fighting for custody of our son. I was a drug addict, and our lives were upside down. We were a million and a half dollars in debt, $99,000 overdrawn, and our whole life was falling apart. So the pressure of that was just building and building, and I kept hearing in the back of my mind, this life you have is not worth living. You ought, to, you ought to kill yourself. We had this old historic house, and I went up in the attic of it. And it was a junky old house that kind of re- represented our junky old life, just broken and needing of everything. And went in the attic of that house and moved the attic fan out of the way. 
had set up a rope and I decided I was just going to hang myself, that, that if I would take my own life, it would be the very best thing that could happen. And during that time, something just, just moved me, cry out to a God I never knew. And I thought, oh my gosh, he was there all along. And I kept hearing kill myself and he was going die to yourself. And it sounded so similar. And when I went down those stairs, I met Ash just right after that. And we had been, of course, fighting through this divorce. I said, I got saved. And she said, you're a liar. Yeah, I didn't believe him when he came downstairs and tried to tell me that he was different. I just thought it was one more thing that he was trying to do to manipulate me to stay or to do something that would cause me to lose Nelson. But um, about, let me see, that was probably April, May. By October, early November of that same year, I found out I was pregnant, but I was still having this affair with this other gentleman, mainly because I was scared to be left alone. I had someone on the side that would accept me and laugh with me and what I thought loved me, and I didn't want to let go of that just in case John was playing me. That's all we have time for tonight. To order a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please visit our website, findingtruthmatters.org, and select Redemption Part 3 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, there are circumstances and people who, by all accounts, are deserving of contempt, and yet God, who is the ultimate Redeemer, can transform what is impossibly bad into something unbelievably good. More from Dr. Corbett next week with the conclusion to the Redemption series. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.